So usually the kind of question that we hear from people most often is some version of the question, where is God? Where is God in my pain? God didn't show up for me in this situation. If God truly loved me, he would have rescued me from cancer. He would have rescued me from a bad marriage. He would have um, done something. And there was some, it's a really an expression of, of the soul's longing, I think, of when things have go, gone badly wrong in our lives. And we talked a bit last week about the philosophical problem of evil and really that the task of professional apologist is to show that there's no inherent contradiction with the existence of an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God and the existence of evil, that those two things can both exist at the same time. So that was really last week's lesson. We also spent a considerable amount of time talking about the moral problem of evil, which I said is sort of the first type of evil, the first, you know, kind of, if you think about the problem of evil with organizational mental hooks, as I like to call them, the first hook is the problem of moral evil. That's the evil that we perpetuate on each other in our sinfulness. So we make sinful human choices. We damage people uh, because of the choices that we make. We hurt them. And that's the problem of moral evil. We want to begin to talk about the second type of evil today, the second bucket or the mental hook. So this is a nice little review from last week, plus introducing our question for today. We live in a world festering with moral evil, a world of wars, torture, rape, murder, and other acts of meaningless violence. In every city in the world every day, there are people deliberately inflicting pain on humans and other animals, and even enjoying others' suffering. There's also natural evil, such as disease, famine, floods, and earthquakes. This is terrible, but undeniable. For anyone who believes in the existence of a benevolent God, who is also all-knowing and all-powerful, this presents a powerful challenge, a problem, the problem of evil. How could a good God allow anyone to do such horrific things? If God is all-knowing, then he or she or it is completely aware of what's going on, and if all-powerful, could easily stop it. Yet the thunderbolts don't come. Many atheists have taken the existence of so much evil as conclusive proof that there can't be a good God, and that there probably isn't a God at all. The problem of evil seems to be a genuine problem for anyone who wants to believe that there is. One response, the free will defense, is this. God could have created human beings that always did the right thing, never harmed anyone else, never went astray, but that would have made us automata, pre-programmed robots. It's far better to have free will with the genuine risk that some people will end up evil than to live in a world without choice. That's the claim. Victims of Caligula, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, Majedung, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, and the rest might disagree. And even if you accept the free will defense, it doesn't explain natural evil. So that's like a little review of last week. We talked about the moral problem of evil. But then we're left with this question about natural evil. And this is sort of the second major category of evil is natural evil. And when we're talking about natural evil, what we mean by that are things like natural disasters. 
hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, uh, things like famine, uh, disease-causing disease bacteria, viruses, and other diseases. And for some people, it's pretty much anything that annoys them. <laughs> and I've heard this from some people. They're like, oh, it's just natural evil is like Murphy's Law. You know, it's just anything that's annoying, mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? So the question of natural evil is a very important question because often what I find is that Christians will give a very superficial answer to the problem of evil, and they'll say, well, it's about human free choice, as we talked about last week. God didn't make robots. He made human beings with free choice. They've misused their free choice, and this is why evil happens. Well, as true as that answer might be, it is an incomplete answer. And we need to have an appreciation for this other second category of evil. As you saw in that video, which is not a Christian video, it's, it's a part of a, a philosophy series of videos on YouTube. So they're, they're kindly pointing out to us as the Christian that when you give the free will defense to the problem of evil, it is inadequate. Does that make sense? Because the question is, is what does free will have to do with a tsunami, that doesn't seem to go together, right? So um, the existence of natural evil is irreconcilable with the existence of a AAA God, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God, unless there are necessary or good reasons for God to permit such evil. And so the question is, as Mr. Hatch just beautifully uh, stated, is... Is this the best of all possible worlds that God could have created? And why did God create this world? These are the two questions that relate to natural evil. Now, what I'm going to present today is, might be new, a, diff a different approach than you've heard before to this problem. And this is, uh, comes after almost 18 years of reflection and studying of scripture. So I just want you to know, like, I didn't roll out of bed yesterday and come up with this. These are things and strategies that I found to be effective in witnessing to unbelievers. And so I'm going to tell you up front, there might be some new information here. There might be some perspectives you haven't thought of before. Nothing I'm going to present is outside of Christian orthodoxy, as we've been talking about all year. It's not some weird esoteric doctrine, but it's a little bit more unusual in our particular tradition. And so I'm drawing more on the ancients in, in this point of view, okay? So this is something for you to think about and to consider. Um, I'm not going to, like, die for this, but I am trying to present a point of view that I have found extremely helpful and useful in talking to unbelievers, which is really what this is all about, right? So this is something for you to try on and to uh, think about, okay? So the, how we answer the problem of evil, I said last week, is connected to at least three ideas. And we're going to deal with two of them today. So I have them underlined here. One is our concept of the physical world. We haven't really dealt with that yet last week. And the second is the impact of the fall on the physical world. These are the two aspects that we're going to cover. Last week, we covered the impact of the fall on humanity. 
which is the second part of number two. Um, and then we're going to try to cover the third point at the very end of today. But these are the three critical questions that we have to think about when we're thinking about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. So there's kind of two views to this. The first view is that all evil, moral evil, and natural evil are the result of Adam's sin. The second view is that Adam's sin affected humanity. That's what we call moral evil, which is what we talked about last week, but didn't fundamentally change the natural world and didn't impact the natural world directly. Now, view number one is that Eden was the ideal. It was perfect, as we said last week. That that is, that is a view, that all death was introduced at the fall. The laws of physics changed at Adam's fall. So in this view, when you think about something like a hurricane, all right, or a tsunami happening, the question in this view is that, well, before Adam's fall, were there any hurricanes? Were there any tsunamis? Were there what we call natural disasters? Or did those all start as a result of Adam's sin? And I think that many of us uh, probably haven't really spent much time meditating on that question. But this is a very real question that many unbelievers wonder if the, the Christianity teaches. Because when we say that everything is Adam's fault, what they hear us saying, if they have even just basic understanding of science, is that what we're saying is before Adam sinned, there were no earthquakes, no tsunamis, no tornadoes, no hurricanes. Now, we know that Eden is a real location because it tells us where it is. It's somewhere in the Middle East, uh, probably around the boot of Saudi Arabia, somewhere between there and uh, Eastern Africa. We know this from the rivers that are named in uh, Genesis chapter 2. So we know that Eden was a real place. It wasn't on another planet. It wasn't in another dimension. It was in a real place and time. And so the question uh, in, in this view is that, you know, to think through some of the scientific challenges with that view. Basically what they're suggesting is that the laws of physics changed at the fall. Uh, in my honest opinion, I think this has some scientific problems. Because you're asking the unbeliever to suspend everything they know about the physical world. And that the laws of physics dramatically changed thousands of years ago. And the problem, I think that this has some problems that I won't go into, but I'm just saying in my opinion, um, and there would be people that would sharply disagree with me on this, and that's okay. But... I'm just saying that, in my opinion, I think that this has some problems. But there is a second view, and this is still a Christian view, and that is that, and we began to allude to this last week, is that God had multiple options for how to set up the universe. And we know that there's at least two of them. I think he had other options as well. But one is the angelic realm. The angelic realm operates differently than this space-time continuum. So he had other options, other ways of creating. We know that in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be no more pain, suffering, or death, or evil, right? So he has other options available to him. This wasn't the only option in the way that he could have set it up. So he could have set up a situation, apparently, where there was no evil, 
Well, there was no sadness. Well, there was no pain or suffering because he's going to do that in the new creation. So that was an option that was available to him. But he chose to create a life-sustaining planet here that we could live on, that complex human life could live on. And if you want to get into the intricacies of what's involved with creating a life-sustaining planet, um, I can tell you that there's at least about 500 different things that have to be fine-tuned in order to get one planet that can sustain human life. And if you want the documentation for that, uh, come see me afterwards and I can refer you to those resources. But God had options available. But what he chose was to create a universe, apparently, with three space dimensions and one dimension of time so that he could create one habitable planet for us to live on. Now, another aspect of this view, view number two, is that Eden was described as good and very good, but not perfect. So that's a differentiation between view number one. Is, and I've listed here the references in Genesis 1 where it talks about good and very good. And you'll notice that nowhere in the text does it ever say the world was perfect. That is an assumption, I think, that we read into the text. But there was something different about Eden. And the question is, is what was that difference? And um, that's part of what we're thinking about today. A third point in this second view is that God chose a certain set of laws of physics that would create a planet that would be a habitable home for life. I like this verse in Isaiah 41. I think it's a nice summary of God's purpose. And to go to Mr. Hatch's earlier question is, why did God create the world? He says in Isaiah 41, 18, For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. So why did God create the earth? He created it for humanity. It's a place where other creatures live as well. But the pinnacle of God's creation, I would argue, according to Psalm chapter 8, is the creation of humanity. He's created us a little lower than the angels. And he created a life-sustaining planet with certain laws of physics that were needed to sustain those particular life forms. Now, he could have created a different planet with different physics if all he had ever made was cockroaches. Cockroaches have far less needs. <laughs> they, they have smaller body sizes. If, we, if he only intended to create bacteria, he could have created a, a planet that had much harsher conditions. But he created a planet to be inhabited by humanity. So he needed a planet that was just the right size by the just the right star in just the right type of galaxy and just the right location in that galaxy in just the right planetary rotation uh, with just the right gas giants nearby to keep the, the orbit of the planet stable and on and on and I could go. But he created a planet, he created a planet to, that was optimized for human life. This is why he created it. And then he sends his son into this planet to save his own creation. And he comes in the form of not a cockroach, not a bacteria, 
but the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. Uh, next point is that death came to humans at the fall. Now, let's look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all, what does it say? All people, all, people, all humans, not all life. And so what I found very interesting is to look at the, 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 the reality that Paul doesn't say anything about death coming to all animals because Adam sinned. Again, that's an assumption that we read into the text. But nowhere in scripture does it say all death was introduced at the fall. It says all death came to humans. And so I think that this might be an important detail, might not be. And again, there would be people who would vehemently disagree with me on this, but this is just an observation from the text. And this is gonna be part of the cumulative case that I'm trying to build here. After the fall, humans were banned access to the tree of life. Well, let's look at that passage in Genesis 3. As the Lord God said, the, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he had, from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and flaming swords flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why is this so important? Why does God need to make these, take these supernatural steps to ensure that humans don't have access to the tree of life? Well, I think it's a way that he has programmed into the creation to limit evil. That Can you imagine if the, evil, the, the most evil rulers of the world had access to the tree of life? If Adolf Hitler could take from the tree of life and live forever, imagine the multiplication of evil that would happen. This is in God's graciousness that he limits humanity's access to the tree of life. And this is part of what he has, he has done, I think, on, on our behalf, and it is his graciousness. But as part of living in a post-fall world, we don't have access to that tree of life. Now, um, can I do have time for a tiny side tangent? Um, there is an emerging uh, kind of religious movement that's happening called transhumanism. Has anyone have you, have you ever heard of this? Yeah. Transhumanism is um, an attempt for humans to reprogram their DNA to live forever. Uh, the ministry that I work for is starting to do new work in new thinking in the realm of transhumanism because we're starting to get more calls for media appearances to have a Christian response to transhumanism. And there's things happening with artificial wombs where you can still bear children long after you've gone past the age of childbearing where you could use an artificial womb. <laughs> if, if you believe that humanity are purely physical... You want to figure out a way to live forever. What if, if you, if you believe, uh, as many do, 
that the brain is the central organ of the body and the, the brain is what makes you, you know, human and operates all of this hardware in your body. Maybe you could detach your head and put it on a younger body and keep living. <laughs> this is a real thing. It's called a head transplant. Not a body transplant. And there's a doctor who's working on this rigorously in, I think it's in Italy, and he's been working on this project for a number of years, and he's set to do the first one in December. I want you to think about this as a secular response to being barred from the tree of life. Yeah. This, is a, this is humanity's way of trying to grab for the tree of life. To, yeah, to beat the, the limits that God has put on us. And I think that very soon... Um, Part of what it's going to mean to be a Christian, quite honestly, is going to mean that we just live an entirely different lifestyle than other people. This has huge worldview implications. That in God's economy, we live with certain limitations and we live under the created order that he has created. But this, our culture is rapidly going in the direction of looking for all of these kinds of specialty ways to customize themselves and to go beyond God's created order to a radical degree. And the religion of transhumanism is um, on the rise. So you're getting a little preview of what's coming here. But I want you to understand that this has direct origins implications for reaching for the, the tree of life. And what it means to be a Christian, what that's going to look like in the coming decades is going to um, change and going to undergo quite a metamorphosis. Okay, another point here is that a biblical case can be made, I think, that animal death seems to be part of God's created order and not the result of Adam's sin. Going beyond uh, Romans chapter 5, there's a few other verses that I think are very fascinating to look at in the wisdom literature. In Psalm 104, it talks about how the lions roar for their prey and they seek their food from who? God. That God is seen, being seen as a source for their food. And that the killing of other animals is part of what we call the food cycle in biology. It's, but that that's part of the created order, that animal death is part of the way, the system that God has set up, potentially. Yes, yes. Yeah, but the first animal death um, yes. was the sacrifice of yes. the animals for their skins to cover right. the, you know, the sin of right. uh, Adam and Eve, right. foreshadowing Jesus. Right. But, so where does it yeah. say in the text that's the first animal death? Well, I don't see any before that. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, is that, that is, it's a possibility. But that's an inference that we read into the text. It doesn't okay. actually say that. Yeah. Okay. It just says that God slayed those animals to create a covering for them. Okay. But there's nothing in the text that says those are the first animals that ever died. Okay. And I'm actually making the case there's actually biblical evidence that Animal death could be part of the created order from the beginning. Something to consider. Yeah, I'm not going to die for this. This is, just, <laughs> this is just an idea for you to try on. 
Another passage is in Job 38. It says, do you hunt? He's, t- he's asking Job. He's giving the great inquisition at the end of Job 38. And he's asking Job kind of, where were you? You think you're so smart. Where were you when I created the foundations of the world? And he says, the angels were there watching me create the foundations of the world. But you weren't there. And he says, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven and its young to when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? The whole thrust of Job 38 is it's God who's making these provisions. And so I think that there is a way of seeing animal death and predation as being part of God's good creation. It's part of the way that God has set things up. But what happened in the fall was that humanity was plunged into sin. And then we began an adversarial relationship with the created order. We began exploiting animals, maybe for the wrong reasons. We began corrupting the earth with pollution. We did evil to the earth. We defiled the land. But I'm just laying out a really brief case for us to consider that maybe we're reading too much into the text to say that all death everywhere came about as a result of Adam's fall. Maybe only humanity's death came about as a result of the fall, which is part of the problem of moral evil that we looked at last week. But the problem of natural evil, I'm not convinced that there is a strong biblical case that natural evil is the result of Adam's fall. So what is natural evil? When we think about natural evil, what is it? We have this term, it's used in philosophy all the time. I take a little umbrage with this term. I don't like this term because I think it's calling some things evil that might not actually be evil. Some natural evil, I think, may be the result of natural laws that are necessary for the existence of a life support planet. Some of what we're calling evil, natural evil, I'm not sure is actually evil. Some of it might just be the result of the physics and the way that God has set things up. For example, I've got a few examples here. The same weather systems that create killer tornadoes also create thunderstorm that provides us with water needed for human existence. Some plate tectonics that kill humans in earthquakes are necessary for planetary temperature regulation. Are you aware the plate tectonics are not just a nuisance for us in terms of building codes? You know, it's it's a necessary feature of a life support planet to regulate the temperature of the planet. It's like a thermostat. The same with tornadoes and hurricanes. You need to have a certain fine-tuned amount of tornadoes and hurricanes to help regulate the planet's temperature. And in fact, astrophysicists have documented that if, you, if, a plate do, if a planet does not have plate tectonics, we don't need to look for life there because life can't exist there. It has runaway temperatures. So we need a certain fine-tuned amount of plate tectonics to have advanced life. Now, again, if we were all cockroaches, it would be less, less important because cockroaches and bacteria have wider 
levels in which they can exist. They have wider, uh, they're, they're more tolerant, you know. When the nuclear disaster happens, that's probably all that's going to be left. It's the cockroaches and the bacteria. Because <laughs> they can exist under extreme conditions. We cannot. And it could be much worse. Look at the planet Jupiter. Have you ever seen that hurricane on Jupiter that's like never ending? And it's so severe. It, so, Is that the big spot? The big spot, yeah. yes. is a never-ending hurricane. And it's been going on for hundreds of years. So it could be much worse. But we need just the right amount of these things so that it's not too much and not too life-prohibitive, but not too, too, not too little, that we can't exist. It's just like that old fairy tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. We need the porridge to be just right, right? Another form of natural evil is disease. Certain causes of various kinds of cancer seem to be a combination of physics or decay or radiation, genetics, and human activity, potentially moral evil. Some things that we call natural evil, like certain diseases, are actually not 100% physics. Some, of, some disease we bring on ourselves, don't we? We, we make poor choices with our bodies over a long period of time, and then we have consequences. That's not natural evil. Some diseases, like when astronauts go in outer space, they have to carefully regulate how much time they spend in space because they are exposed to so much radiation in outer space. And we have this beautiful protective layer around our planet that helps to protect us from a lot of that radiation. There's a lot of poisonous stuff in outer space. It could be so much worse. But this, they've noticed that many of these astronauts that spend a lot of time in, uh, beyond um, our protective coating, they have lots of health problems because they're exposed to these poisonous things that our bodies are not created to consume and tolerate. Now, that might be more of disease coming from physics, what I'm calling physics, or the way that the universe has been set up. But I don't know if that has an intentionality of evil. It seems to be us going somewhere outside of our created habitat and getting some consequences from the physics. So diseases are complicated. Sometimes they're the result of degradation through genetics. Um, that's a whole other interesting realm to explore. But, and what's interesting is I have a colleague, she has a PhD in microbiology, and her specialty is in virology. She's spent her whole adult life studying viruses. And she actually They're thinks... At the top of the food chain. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she thinks it's her life calling to study viruses because she believes Jesus has called her to help find cures for diseases. And she's worked on the SARS virus the Ebola virus, she's not married, she has no children, and she exposes her, has exposed herself regularly to these viruses for the good of, the pe of people so that we can receive vaccines. And so to her, part of her life mission is relieving pain and suffering. Remember I was talking about that at the end last week, is the church is part of the solution to relieving pain, evil, and suffering. And she's taken that calling very seriously. And she's saying, I'm going to step into this and study these viruses. She's done research in Russia, all over the world, to study these viruses and help come up with vaccines to help alleviate suffering. But what's interesting to me is that she's talked to me about how 
some viruses are actually useful for curing other virus problems. And they actually sometimes use these viruses to create vaccines. And so we don't want to fall into the trap of saying all viruses are evil. Because some of them actually, the more we study them, have value and can be part of us redeeming them and relieving human pain and suffering. So all of this to say, I think we just have to be a little more circumspect what we're calling natural evil. Because sometimes it's not always a cut and dry situation. Let's look at a second point here about natural evil. My first point was that some natural evil may be the result of natural laws. My second point is that natural evil, some natural evil, may be the result of free agency, including moral evil. For example, some humans choose to build homes on major fault lines because they like the weather <laughs> in the area. Or they choose to buy homes in hurricane zones because they like living near the beach, right? But that's a choice that we make. That's not God's fault. That's a, that's a choice that we are engaging as free will agents. Sometimes corrupt governments don't enforce rigorous building codes or they don't protect their people with proper vaccinations and medical care. That's not natural evil. That's moral evil. So, for example, you have a, a 6.8 earthquake here in L.A. You know, you got uh, a cracked freeway and some busted ketchup bottles on the floor in Albertsons. You got a 6.8 in Mexico City and 10,000 people die. Yeah. Why? Because corrupt governments don't enforce good building codes. Is that natural evil or is that moral evil? In many times in other countries, uh, people in first world countries give money for vaccinations in third world countries, but the money never trans translates to the vaccinations. And then you have deadly outbreaks of, of problems that are so curable, easily curable just with basic medical care. But that's not natural evil per se, I would say that that's a result of free moral choice. So we have to be, again, be very careful what we call natural evil. And I don't even like that term natural evil because I think some of it is just physics. Some of it is just living in a world where we have a life support planet, but sometimes it is the result of free moral agents. So is natural evil incompatible with a triple-A God? I think that a lot of what we call natural evil seems to really be the result of natural laws and that are just necessary for human existence. I resist this term of natural evil. I prefer to call it natural laws. Some quote-unquote natural evil seems to be the result of some combination of moral evil, human free choice, sometimes even also in their natural laws. There's, it's a combination. And there are necessary or good conditions that God permits natural evil because he has set up a planet that he wanted to be inhabited. He wanted it to be inhabited with humanity. And so he, he again, remember, he had other options available, Right? And in the new creation, he will do it differently. But for this creation, he set it up this way. So be careful when you're talking to people 
about what you put in the category of evil. Hopefully this has helped equip you to kind of think a little bit more nuanced, a little more sophisticated about what we call evil. Um, some situations are complicated and have multiple causes. Sometimes we don't even know what those causes are. I haven't even talked about demonic causes of evil, pain, and suffering. I'm just looking at this purely from more of a naturalistic standpoint. But from our standpoint as Christians, demonic causes, demonic interference can also be a cause of pain, evil, and suffering. And so these things are complicated. There, there are often multiple factors, so we need to have some appreciation for that. Remember last week I kind of had some big picture points on theology. So let's pull back now and talk about all of this from a big picture theological point of view. And I'm going to advocate for what I'm calling a two creation worldview. The Christianity is a worldview that is fundamentally about two creations. And this I think is critical for answering the problem of evil. We can have all the best answers philosophically in the world to show that it's not incoherent, that it's not irrational. But if you don't ever pull back and look at the big picture, I think that people aren't going to get it. And so this is critical when you're talking in your oikos of the two creation worldview or the two creation model. This space-time universe of three dimensions of space and one dimension of time is not all there is. It's not all there was, and it's not all there ever will be, in the words of Carl Sagan. This isn't the whole thing. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. That's the second creation. And we need to understand that because, uh, Ms. Lois, you're asking about judgment, and that's part of the second creation. And I think that it's important for us to understand the two-creation worldview that this is an, a critical part of Christianity. God created a world where moral evil was possible. That's a little review from last week. We also said last week that Satan already existed in the, by the time the garden was there. So some kind of a fall of sorts had already happened. God apparently allowed Satan to have access to Eden, and he allowed Adam and Eve to be tested. He allowed that to happen. He could have barred it. He, he had other options available to him, but he didn't. Adam's actions plunged all of humanity into sin. Next is that Jesus conquered evil and death on the cross. This is so important. We have to understand that the beginning of the new creation starts happening at the resurrection. And he, by conquering death on the cross and through the resurrection, he is giving us a glimpse of coming attractions. He is pulling back the curtain a little bit so that we can see a little preview of what it will be like in the new creation. God brings his offer of redemption to all people groups. That's where we are today. This is the part of the timeline where we are today. We are engaged in a project of bringing the good news to all people groups throughout the earth. That Jesus has conquered evil, death, pain, and suffering, and sin on the cross. And he resurrected to show that 
He was who he claimed to be. So we are now his deputies. And we are bringing this offer of redemption to all people groups. One day, God will permanently remove evil in the new creation. This is so important because I think this is where so many believers get hung up. Unbelievers, I mean. Because we think that this is it. Why doesn't God rescue me now? It's because this creation is not all there is. This creation has a purpose, which we're going to talk about in a minute. (coughs) But God will not permanently remove evil, pain, and suffering until the new creation. And so when we want God to do that for us now, when we want judgment now, when we want relief now, really what we're doing is we're longing for something that's going to be coming. We're long, our hearts are longing for the new creation. The justice will, uh, everything will be put right and there will be perfect justice. There will be different laws, physical laws, whatever you want to call them, in the new creation. Because there will be no more death, suffering, crying, or pain. And this, again, as I said last week, this makes me think that Eden was not the ideal. Rather, Eden was a foreshadowing or a type or a shadow of our redemption in Jesus and the life that we live now and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because now, instead of walking with Jesus in the garden before the fall, Jesus lives in me. Holy Spirit lives in me. There is a sense in which the Christian life is a restoration of Eden. That we have that that face-to-face fellowship. I think one of the most amazing and powerful concepts in the Christian worldview is the one true and living God comes to live inside of me. That is an amazing idea. I don't get that through rituals. I don't get that through steps. The the power of the one true God comes to live in me. And I think that salvation in part is a partial kind of foreshadowing of the new creation and it's a fulfillment of what Eden uh, pointed us forward to. So let's look at Romans 8 together. Romans chapter 8 is a wonderful passage along these lines. I'm going to start at verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive, this is so similar to the passage that Pastor John was preaching this morning in Galatians. Paul sort of revisits those themes here. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his, what does it say? His sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. See, the two creation model. We are sharing right now in his sufferings. See, we ought to expect an amount of suffering and pain in our life. Because we are living in a post-fall world. But we ought also to expect that because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have this powerful and intimate relationship with the Father. 
that we've been adopted as his children and we anticipate living with him in glory. A two creation model is a fundamental idea of the Christian worldview and is a powerful answer to the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Let's continue. I, can, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, uh, let's read this carefully. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. See, there's the, it's almost like the earth is waiting to know who the true sons of God, who the true children of God are. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, I want us to notice here that it doesn't say when it was subjected to frustration. It doesn't say it was subjected to frustration at the fall. It just said it was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it, which I interpret that to be the creator. So if it was set up from the beginning a certain way, that it was subjected to frustration. Maybe those are the natural laws that we call frustrating. <laughs> Maybe not. But the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, we are anticipating the new creation. We are waiting for the new creation. Right now we're living in a creation that is optimized for us to inhabit it, but it's also in bondage to decay. And decay, we see decay all around us. Unfortunately, I look at some pictures of myself the other night from five years ago, I'm decaying. <laughs> this, is, this is part of the natural laws, the law of decay. It's part of the way the world was set up, I think. And it is something that God intended. He was the one that subjected it that way. But that he has a big, another plan for a new creation where there be no more decay. No more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more death. There will be no decay. I'm, I'm hoping like I'm 25 in the new creation. Yeah, like 25 in looks and like, you know, 50 in wisdom. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah. Uh, this, is, this is the hope. So I want us to think about the purpose of pain from a Christian point of view. Because pain is not some random act. It's not purposeless. The purpose of this creation. Well, in the, uh, the catechism, if you ever were in a Presbyterian or Lutheran church, you know, what is the chief end of man? to glorify, worship and glorify him forever, you know. So that is a critical purpose of this creation, is that something is happening. God has set this up to glorify himself. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. This creation points to that creator. It's to glorify God. It's certainly one of its purposes. I think another one of the purposes of this creation is to train us to rule and to reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. I think that when we go to heaven, we're going to have very uh, meaningful jobs. We're not just going to be sitting around on clouds for all eternity playing harps. I think God 
has created our constitution as humans in such a way that we like to work. And satisfying work makes us happy. Because do you know that work was part of the created order before the fall? Work is not a result of the fall. Our work is more frustrating now after the fall. It's more difficult. I think part of what it means to be human is to work and to find value and dignity in satisfying work. I think, this is speculation, that part of what we're going to be doing in the new creation is some kind of work that we're going to find amazingly satisfying. And that what we're doing here is training us for that on some level. We get only hints of this in scripture. 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life will we judge things in this life? Now, how do we judge angels? I have no idea. Paul just kind of mentions this as a passing thought, that we're going to judge the angels. Maybe that's something we're going to do in the new creation. I don't know, but it strikes me as interesting. Uh, I'm wondering what that means. Uh, In Revelation 5 and also in chapters 20 and 22, it says, "You You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. We're going to be doing something with reigning or governing, apparently. I think that what we're going to do is interesting to speculate about. But the scripture has these hints that in the new creation, we're going to be reigning with Christ. We are co-heirs with him. And maybe what we're doing here is to prepare us for that. So I have this speculation, and again, that's all it is, is a speculation, that the more we learn here, maybe the more responsibility we will be given in the new creation. I mean, is, don't we just intuitively have this thought that people who have run a good race and been faithful to the Lord and die in a faithful position with him, isn't there just something intuitive to us that we think they're going on to their reward and that they're going to be you know, entrusted with something. I mean, there's just something intuitive to us that there's going to be a reward for their faithfulness. And that all that they endured in this life and in the sufferings, if they endured it well, that there's dignity and glory in that. There's something in us that that thinks that, I think. And um, I wonder uh, whether... When we endure well, when we run well, when we stay faithful to the Lord, even in the midst of suffering, something is being strengthened in our soul. It's like lifting 100-pound weights in the gym. You know, when you endure suffering well, you're building something. You're strengthening your soul. And that will be part of your reward in in the new creation. Again, this this is speculation. I think that maybe, again, this is another speculation, there's a hint that this this purpose of this creation is to provide a place for the angels to observe us. Paul again says in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. 
There's something about their persecution and their suffering that they're being put on display and that the angels are watching them as a spectacle. Now, I don't know what God is trying to possibly teach them. I don't know what this is, the purpose of this is. But there's something about our suffering when we are faithful like the apostles in our faith that maybe the angels are watching us and that we are being put on display for them. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're learning. I don't know if they're puzzled by us or they're, they're wanting to interfere with us or help us. I don't know what that is. But I think this is, again, just a passing reference. I, I can't wait to ask Paul, like, okay, what was this? What was this? You know, but it's just uh, an observation. That's, that's all that it is. I think there are also redemptive purposes of evil. God may permit some natural evil, and I think sometimes some moral evil, because it challenges people to think about God for the first time. For some, the first thoughts or prayers of God or an eternal perspective came as a result of a tragedy. Sometimes things happen in our life that change us. We endure difficulty, and we need the Lord in new ways, and we seek him in new ways. It's hard. Evil is is hard, and I don't uh, recommend that you um, tell your unbelieving friend, like, look, this this is for your good. God's training you. This is more of a, of a perspective for the believer, you know, when you're talking about somebody that, that knows the Lord. God may permit some natural evil, and I would say, I would add there's some moral evil, because it provides humans with the motivation and the opportunity to develop godly character. I think that the test in the Garden of Eden that God put Adam and Eve through was it was the greatest test that he could have allowed because he wanted to have free will creatures that would freely choose to be in relationship with them. And a part of the t- training and testing that they endured as a result of their sin was training them to stay in fellowship with their creator through the means that he provided. And I think that's for us today is, like I said at the beginning of all of this, the time to think about your views on the problem of evil and suffering is probably not when you're in the middle of it because your, your view is so skewed. All you can think about is the pain, the difficulty, the challenge. But we, we want to think about it in this two worlds perspective that maybe godly character is going to have some payoff in the new creation. And enduring well, even under difficulty, obeying even under when you're suffering, has value for the new creation. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And notice that this is a promise for the believer. So don't tell your unbelieving friends, you know, hey, it's all work out. It's all good. Everything will work out. Everything will, everything's good. Don't, you don't know that. This is a promise for the believer that God has a way of redeeming even our bad choices. That that when we start obeying him, he just has this way of circling back around and redeeming those choices if we allow him. Now we can drown in shame and we can drown ourselves and, oh, I made this bad choice and, and, and get stuck there. 
or we can allow God to begin to heal that and redeem it for his own purpose. It's just amazing to me how the Lord has taken things I have suffered through. And once I started obeying him, it turned into something that could be a blessing to somebody else. But you have to kind of be willing to go through that process. And um, God is still good even when bad things are happening. Even when I'm making bad choices, God is still good. And he can still redeem it. Now we say, you know, as long as a person's breathing, there's still time for God to do something. There's still time for God to have an intervention for that person to come to faith, come to repentance. And that really leads me to the final point here is in our third critical theological issue is our concept and experience of God as father. This is so critical for the problem of evil. Because if we have a fundamental belief that God is our father and that he's good and he's Abba, and that the Holy Spirit is testifying with our spirit that he is our father, we're going to have a much different viewpoint on evil than if we think that God is distant, detached, uncaring, or possibly even abusive toward us. Our concept of the heavenly father and his character and how he interacts with his children is absolutely critical to how we think about our pain and our suffering. If we truly believe that the father is doing good things for us and he has good things for us, we will relate to our evil that we're going through much differently. But for the unbeliever that doesn't have Holy Spirit in them, doesn't have that connection with the Heavenly Father, their spirit isn't testifying that the Heavenly Father is Abba to them. They will not be able to make sense of the evil pain and suffering that's in their life from from this point of view. And so sometimes the best thing to do with the unbeliever is to begin to invite them to get to know the Father better than the philosophy is to invite them to begin to consider the Father and his character and his love for them. And I've seen amazing miracles happen when I invite people to begin to consider their Heavenly Father as a father. And that the way that the Father begins to meet them in their emotional needs is transforming many times. So that is kind of my word that I want to leave with you is to consider how um, there's many ways to answer the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. But sometimes, honestly, the best way is just to invite that person to begin to understand the Father's heart for them. That maybe they have fundamentally misunderstood or they just haven't even met him yet. And just say, hey, let's just start asking the Father to meet you in a new way. Let's start asking, let's, let, would you mind if I pray with you? And we just invite the Heavenly Father to begin to reveal himself to you as your father. I've seen amazing miracles happen in people's lives as a result of that. And sometimes they're willing to do that because they're so desperate for relief from their pain. And just say, let's, let's begin to let the Father minister to your heart. Let's see how he wants to reveal himself to you. And just walk with them through that. Okay? We're a little over time. Probably because my tangent on transhumanism. But uh, we will end.
Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you how you are Father to us, and you have answered the problem of evil in your Son, Jesus. That you have crushed the enemy, and that you have conquered death, and you have shown us that you have the credentials for us to trust in you, and that we know that you are a, a Father who keeps his promises and that we can trust in you, and that we can invite other people to trust you and experience you the way that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.